Hey everybody, this is me, Natalie Harpin. Welcome back to another episode of Happy Hour History. What I wanted to do this week was I wanted to play for you the presentation that I gave on Thursday, February 24th at Grossmont College. It was about the Afro-Latinx connection. And we decided to do this for Black History Month at Grossmont because we wanted to show that there are Black roots in Latinx culture and that a lot of things like the food, the dance, you know, just the things that make up culture, a lot of them are rooted in African culture, including a lot of the revolutionary leaders throughout Latin American history. And even though largely ignored, it is a huge contribution. And the other reason is because, you know, blackness doesn't just stop in the United States. In fact, the U.S. has the least, usually, um, generally, the least number of enslaved Africans who came over during the slave trade, which is why the Black American population or just the Black population in the United States, for those who self-identify, has remained a racial minority. Where in other places like Brazil and the Caribbean, you know, Latin America, they tend to be a majority, if not pretty equal to the white population. So I wanted to talk about that for the presentation, and that was something that the committee decided that was that would be good because it you know promotes people learning about cross culturation and different histories. And you know I've gotten on here before and you know talked about how Latinx is not a race, even though it gets used as one in our media as a you know its own racial box. It's an ethnic group. So you have blacks, whites, indigenous, Asians who are part of that um, ethnic group. And so for Black History Month, we wanted to show some cross-culturation and really get students interested in what some of those cultural connections and roots are and think about how a lot of the history that they didn't learn about their, you know, from their Latin American heritages or maybe even in Latin American history classes, how a lot of it ignores or doesn't really talk about the Black presence, the Black history, the Black present in those countries today but that they are there and that it's important to talk about their history. So without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and let you listen to that recording. I just want to let you know that there is some shuffling around because I was moving around during the presentation. I tend not to like to stand in one place unless the classroom is really, really narrow or tight. So um, you do hear me moving around a little bit, but I hope that you enjoy it. And I hope that you learn something from it. If you ever have any questions about resources, books, um, you know, this is what I do. I'm not a Latin Americanist. I don't consider myself one as far as like, you know, history wise, but it's been really interesting, like, you know, because I do study um, the black experience in the hemisphere, right? I've sort of dug a lot into Latin American history because again, most of the black population in the hemisphere is in Latin America, not in the United States. So I'm gonna let you go ahead and listen to that. And if you you know, want to see the handouts or anything I handed out, um, you can always email me or DM me on Instagram at Natalie History, and I will send it right on over. So I hope you enjoy the presentation, guys. And, you know, girls. Can't really start talking about Afro-Latinx connection without going back a little bit to how all these people got here to begin with. Okay. So if you were in my class, you would know about the transatlantic slave trade, right? Who can guess which country got the least amount of enslaved Africans? Yes. Uh, the United States. Boom, that's it, the US. Now most of you probably learned something different, right? Or you didn't really learn at all, or maybe you never thought about it. But the United States got the least number of enslaved Africans, which is why we, comma, the black African Americans, are a racial minority in the United States. Versus in Latin America and the Caribbean, they tend to be pretty equal or maybe even a majority, okay? So I'm also conscious about the words that we use, which is why I'm not calling these people just slaves, 
Because if somebody knocked in the door right now and took you all to Russia and said you were slaves, you all have lived 19, 20 years with your identities, right? You have your name, your desires, your drives, your likes, your dislikes, your positive attributes and negative ones. It would be unfair to just relegate you to your now new status, okay? So we have two waves of diasporic slavery. And diaspora meaning people who are displaced amongst a hemisphere in this case. So there is even like an Asian diaspora in Latin America and throughout the Americas in general. But today we're focusing on the African diaspora. In the first wave, you have people who are more so like personal servants to people. They, have, they are skilled laborers. They often buy their freedom because when you're in a Catholic-controlled colony, alliteration, yeah, what day do you have off? Sunday. Sunday. So these people who were enslaved had Sundays off. They got to keep most of their pay when they would do their skilled labor. So maybe after two, three, four years of Sundays, you have enough money to buy your freedom. And because it's not based on race yet, nobody cares. They write your paper and say, I paid you know, 400 pesos for you, which you know, was the cost of a house in Mexico in this first era. So you gave me 550, I've made my money and I have some left over to go hang out and do what I wanna do. So it's an economic exchange. Now in the second wave, we see a shift to that. But when you were free, you could marry who you wanted to marry, have kids with who you wanted to have kids with, and everything else because your citizenship or status was not based on your race. It's based on your citizenship status, okay? It changes in the second wave here because they need more and more people to facilitate the goods that have sh um, taken off during the market economy. All the things you know that enslaved people cultivated, like sugar, sugar cotton, diamonds, right? Other minerals, things that we don't even really think about too much in the US, but it also includes rice and a lot of other um, commodities. Now you may have known that Indigenous people have been enslaved in the Americas, but not in the same way. Okay, they were not branded and given to people and their children based on um, their children having to assume that enslaved status upon their birth. They were more of a protected class because of men like um, De Las Casas, who you may have learned about. So we also have these racial mixtures that come about with that, okay? So this is where we start seeing new groups of people that previously did not exist in the Americas because we have the Europeans mixing with the, um, with the natives and the natives mixing with the blacks and the Europeans mixing with the blacks. Why? Why did they do that? Because they didn't bring any white women. Oops, <laughs> they left them at home, right? So you got a bunch of people your age, bunch of men who are like, um, are we, what are they supposed to do, right? So they're making children with and creating a society where people can do what they want to do, not dependent on their race. So now we have multiple castes of people, or castas as they called them, to explain to people back in Europe what's going on. Because their thing is, we didn't send you there to make babies, much less mixed race ones. We sent you there to do what? Convert people to Catholicism and put them to work, period, okay? So now we have all these different groups of people who are abounding in the Americas and we start having a pigmentocracy because everybody looks different depending on whatever mix they are. And as y'all know from having siblings and cousins, 
Some of y'all are uglier than the others. Some of y'all are better looking, right? Some people are exceptionally tall or have different colored eyes. These things happen. It's like a roll of the dice that none of us have any control or remember playing that game. Now, I want you to fill out the top part of your paper if you have not already, or at least look at it if you're sharing. So the question is basically how you identify. Now that could be based on how you identify with your race, your ethnicity, your nationality. But it's important to remember that it's not just about how you identify yourself, but how other people identify you when they're looking at you. I'm sure many of you have been in positions where somebody thought you were part of an ethnic group or a language group or a race that you're not part of, right? Maybe of a national group. Does anyone have an example? No? No one's been anywhere else where people assume that they were something else than what they are? Okay, you want to share? Okay, so when they're looking, when that person was looking at you, they thought they saw Filipino. Okay, good. Anyone else? Yeah. Um, they always tell me that I look from Middle Eastern. Okay. But my background actually is from Mexico. Okay, there you go. Did you have your hand up? Sorry, maybe she has my Okay, cool. I'll give you an example for myself if you haven't filled out your paper yet on the first page. Um, when I was in Brazil, on the beach in Rio, hey, <laughs> right, having a good time, and these guys came up to me and they asked in Portuguese if I was from Brazil. And I said no, and I was speaking back in Spanish because I didn't want anyone to know I was an American. Y'all know how that goes sometimes, right? So I was talking to them in Spanish, and Portuguese and Spanish are similar enough that we could get the words across, okay? So I said no, and they said, are you from Chile? No, right, so this is me, an American black person. Now, I'm not, black, I'm not an Afro-Latina, just so we're clear about that, okay? I'm a black American, um, but non-Latinx. But um, then they asked if I was from Peru. And so for me, I was like, I've never gotten these countries before. But for where they live, most of the people look like me. And in Peru and Chile, there are women who look just like me there, right? So for them, it's not a far off concept to have someone who's darker skinned like myself who is from South America in this case, okay? Does someone want to volunteer how, well actually, how they categorize themselves on the top of the first page? You don't have to. But it's important to know that words mean things. So nationality is the country you were born in, okay? Most of you are Americans, nationality, not African, I mean, not American or hyphen nothing. You were born in the US, you're an American. Race is actually determined by phenotypic traits that are commonly found within a group of people, right? So like for myself, I sit firmly within the phenotype of black. I have darker skin, my hair texture, right? Different things like that, my build, my height, things like that, that are commonly found amongst the population of um, African descended black people. I have those phenotypes. And that's very important we're talking about mixed race people throughout the hemisphere because sometimes people conflate these words. And ethnicity is cultural ties to a region, right? So you can have similar ethnicity but be different races or have similar ethnicity but be different nationalities. So please turn the page. If you, you know, have the thank you for not turning it yet. I want you to guess what these four women's race, nationality, or um, ethnicity is based on the one clue I gave you about them. 
I'm going to give you a few minutes to do that. Can you, uh, oh, you can see it up there, I guess. Okay. Yeah. I think I have the boxes numbered one, two, three, four to make it easy, but top left is one, top right is two, bottom left is three, bottom right is four. I mean, I'll walk around. If anyone has questions, don't be shy, please. You're not in my class yet. So let's look at the number one. Do I have a number? I yes, do. do. Thank you. Let's look at number one. Does anyone know who number one is? Good. That's a great guess. Right? Someone said Gwyneth Paltrow last time, and I was like, I could see it. Right? Like, no. But yeah, you know, you don't, you don't see it. <laughs> so Cameron Diaz, right? Now, Cameron Diaz has ancestral heritage to a Latin American country through her family, okay? What did you classify her race as? White. Now, what made you say that? Because she looks white, right? So again, remember, phenotype is determined by physical traits. So she sits firmly within the category that we would assume is of European or white ancestry, right? She's got blonde hair, blue eyes, light skin, the whole nine, okay? What about her ethnicity? Remember, ethnicity is defined by culture. And in the U.S., we only have two ethnicities. You're either Hispanic, Latino, or non-Hispanic, Latino. Now, most people don't think about that, but that's why when you're filling out a paper, it says black, non-Hispanic, or white, Hispanic, or whatever. So what would her ethnicity be? Hispanic, Hispanic Latino, or Hispanic Latinx, right? Because she has ties to a Latin American country. What about her nationality? You'd have to know what country she was born in. And actually, she was born in San Diego, so I'm not going to leave you in suspense. She's an American, okay? Yeah, we have one. No one's really from here. But um, this is great. Number two. Does anyone know who number two is? Aparicio. Yes, Yalitza Aparicio, actress, okay? She was on the cover of Vogue Mexico a few years ago. It was a big deal because women who look like her don't get to make the cover of those magazines, okay? Now, her ancestral heritage, I'm not exactly sure of the tribe name, but she's of indigenous Mexican descent, so we would categorize that as native or indigenous, okay? Her race, what do you think? 
we would categorize that here as native slash indigenous, right? She has a very different look than Cameron Diaz, okay? Now, ethnicity would then again be Hispanic slash Latinx because she was born in Mexico. Her nationality, the clue I gave you, was Mexican, okay? Number three, does anyone know number three is? Okay, I didn't know either. Okay, so this is, and I mean, I made the assignment, but I had to like find someone to pick who like looked ambiguous, right? So this is uh, Chloe Bennett, who was at Comic-Con, so she's important, okay? But Chloe Bennett. Now, Chloe Bennett's legal name is Chloe Wang because her dad is Chinese American, okay? Now, what did you categorize her race as? Mixed. Anyone else? White, yes, because again, she sits firmly, at least in this picture, she sits firmly within the phenotype of a white woman. If she walked through this door, you'd be like, oh, like this white girl's late, right? Like, you came late to the presentation. But her nationality, so her ethnicity in this case is non-Hispanic Latinx. She was born in the United States. Now, there was a Chinese diaspora through the Americas, which I told you about. So you can be of Chinese descent from Latin America, but she is not that case. I need to find one to put on the activity instead. Number four, does anyone know what number four is? Okay, this is Diana De Los Santos, stage name Amara La Negra. I watch Love and Hip Hop, full disclosure, okay? I like my trash television. So she is a um, Latinx music star, Latin pop or something like that. Um, her, she has ancestral heritage to the Dominican Republic. Both of her parents are from the Dominican Republic. What did you consider her race to be? Black. black. Like myself, she sits firmly within the phenotype of a black woman, okay? Now, her ethnicity would be Hispanic. Hispanic Latinx because she has cultural ties to that country, even though she herself, her nationality is American. She was born in Miami, Florida, but again, she has cultural ties to a Latin American country. She speaks Spanish, the music, you know, everything else, the food. She is a Hispanic Latinx person. Was so, Chloe Bennett also American? Chloe Bennett is, yeah. So she's the only person on our chart whose ethnicity is non-Hispanic Latinx in this case. Okay, so now what role does race play in the colonial time period, okay? Whether or not you can go to school. So if we were in, I don't know, 1787, I wouldn't be your teacher, first of all, right? And most of you wouldn't be in this room. You'd be outside working, just like myself, okay? So if you can go to university is based on your race, period. And you have to be able to prove that you are 100% Spanish from Spain. Spain is in Europe. Spanish people are white. That's another thing that some people don't really make the connection of because you, know, you think, well, people here speak Spanish. They're not white. Yes, but they're speaking the language of their colonizer, just like we are in English. This whole thing is in English, right? I'm speaking the language of a colonizer. So the next one is whether or not you can get a certificate. I actually want to make this point real quick. If we were in 1787, Cameron Diaz would be hell-bent on proving to you at all times that she is 100% Spanish, even though she has ancestral ties to Cuba. How did they know? They put her on your birth certificate and your baptism record. So it follows you wherever you go. Now, when she goes into a room, again, when anybody, even when Chloe Bennett, and let's use her instead, when Chloe enters a room, they're probably gonna treat her like she's a white woman. 
because we know that people get treated differently based on race then and even now. But when she has to apply for a job, is trying to get a partner, the whole nine, everyone wants to, uh-uh, sis, what's that birth certificate say? Because again, back to that um, chart I showed you a slide ago, they want to make sure that you've been mixed in with no indigenous people and no African people. So if you can have a certificated job, that would be like a professional job. The notary, the person whose job it is to record your race at birth and do all that mathematics, <laughs> the racial mathematics, is somebody who's fully Spanish from Spain. They're a full white person, okay? Um, what jobs you can have. So if you're mixed race, indigenous, African, you're outside working. Why? Because do they want the lighter skinned people to be outside getting a tan? Because they don't have sunscreen yet. Do they want them outside? No. Why? Because then someone might assume that they're farther down on that totem pole than they really are. So they want them to be inside. We have to be outside. Okay? Who you can marry. Now, I don't know if any of you are married, but it's tense enough meeting someone's family and having to incorporate, you know, lots of different things like that. But imagine if someone wanted to see, oh, well, we want to make sure that you're not mixed in with any group we don't like. So we want to make sure that there's no indigenous blood in you. We want to make sure that you're not black somewhere down the line, right? People did that back in this time period. And when we're talking about sexual assault, especially of sexual assault of women, people didn't believe you if you were indigenous, black, or mixed race. Because they had hypersexualized you to the point where they assumed that you could not be sexually assaulted. It's a whole thing, I'm not gonna get into that. Take my class, okay? It's a plug for my class. So, if you turn to the next page, some of you may have already done that, you see examples of these racial caste paintings that they made to give some idea to people back in Spain what it was looking like in the Americas. Like, now that we've made everybody <laughs> able to just live amongst themselves free, remember actually they could buy their freedom, they have free populations of enslaved, or excuse me, they have free populations of indigenous people, they have free populations of black people. They have free populations of mixed race people. There's not a whole lot of regulation. And even when there is, these people have already mixed in with each other. So it's kind of hard to put, the, you know, put it back in the can. If you look at the paintings, you can also tell the different types of class that these families belong to based on things like what they're wearing or what they're doing in the image, right? One family on this, like the mom's wearing jewelry. Her daughter's wearing jewelry. The dad's bringing in cookies. Versus the other family, the mom's cooking with her sleeves rolled up. The dad's bringing in water on his head and he has his sleeves rolled up. This is a more working class family. So we have different classes of people and these paintings were meant to highlight that. Now, this is a case where we have an indigenous man and a woman who is three-fourths indigenous and one-fourth Spanish. Now, in a heteropatriarchal society, you don't put the man behind the women. And you're especially in your art. So this is a way of subtly shading him or subtly um, degrading him because he is, has no European blood in him. As you can see, he's half-dressed. He kind of has a wild look in his eyes, right? There's subtle ways that these painters give their cues as to how they feel about these groups of people, even though to most of us, they would just look like, oh, this is a really cool painting, right? This is nice art. What happens when you have someone who has albinism? or is classified as albina or albino, okay? Again, you may have someone who phenotypically looks white, light skin, light hair, light eyes, but when they have a child with someone who is from Spain and their child comes out looking a little dark complected, people are like, what the hell happened, right? Like, who lied? So these things are important. Like I said, because of the genetic mathematics going on, 
And when this woman would be applying for things, her paperwork would all say that, that she had been mixed in and things like that. But when she was walking around outside, nobody knows. And these are some other examples, which I have on your uh, chart here. I didn't put all of them, obviously, because I printed this in color. So enjoy, right? Um, but I wanted you to see some other examples of it. Now, we still do this today. Now, in different ways. So this is a time when people used to buy their whiteness. So they would buy certificates saying, you're white. They, remember I told you they would buy their freedom? So in the second wave, with phase two, they would save money for years and years and years and buy a certificate that said, congratulations, Natalie, you're a white woman now. And I'm like, woohoo! I'm walking around like, ah, oh, now I can have this job and I can do this and I can do that. Are people going to treat me like I'm a white woman? No, because they're like, what are you talking about? Like, you're clearly a black person, okay? But however, like I said, we still do this today, but today we buy diplomas. We buy pieces of paper that give us access to what? Better jobs, right? better positions in society, everything else like that, um, that were previously restricted to our ancestors, most of us, okay? So they don't have VH1 yet to perpetuate negative stereotypes about people based on race. So they start showcasing art where the ethnic spouse is abusing the white spouse or the person higher up on that hierarchy. I didn't print the hierarchy chart for you, but if you take my class, you'll see it. So as you can see here, you have this black woman who's beating her white husband and their mixed race mulatto, mulatta child is looking on in terror. Now for most people you think this is pretty messed up. This is a dysfunctional relationship, right? But again, they don't have VH1 to perpetuate this. So they have to do it through any means that they can and a lot of that's gonna be through their art. They can't stop people from mixing in, but they wanna change the perception and make it so that it's now like, um, I don't know what the word would be, but it's not like cool anymore to do that. So they don't want people who are, um, you know, different groups mixing in because it's causing them a problem, right? They don't know what anybody's gonna look like when they're born. As you can see here, mostly people have one child. So that's not even taking into consideration what if their siblings don't all look alike and everything else, okay? So that leads to a lot of people denying that they have indigenous blood. And in this case, since this is Black History Month, denying that they have African blood. This happens throughout Latin America today. This happens throughout the United States today because it's really about the lineage of the people who were being brought over. So you have people who would say things and who are still very particular about who they mix with, who they have kids with, even if they're from the same ethnicity. They have the same culture, but they recognize that they're different races, right? So they don't want their people to mix in because they say things like, what happens if you have a dark child, or blah, 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 right? This is, throughout, this is a byproduct of colonialism and imperialism, but I'm not gonna talk about that, take my class. Now, what is culture? Culture makes up lots of different things. So I'm gonna give you, I know it's hard to see, I thought it would be bigger, but there are aspects of culture that are very obvious, right? Like food, or language, or music, or things like that. And it's important to remember that when we're talking about the legacy of um, these people in this hemisphere, that a lot of that is going to be similar because of the shared ethnicity that they have, right? So there are certain foods, I accidentally gave you that, thanks. There are certain foods that are similar.
around a wedding. That's great. Thank you very much for sharing that. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. This is mostly just about cross-culturation. So like I said, when you have people who are being moved to different areas and being mixed in with each other back in the continent of Africa and then being mixed again when they get to the continent, the supercontinent of the Americas, right, all of them linked up together, um, you're gonna have a lot of similarities with culture. Sometimes they're gonna be unique examples. Sometimes families adopt things into their culture that they learn from someone else. Any of you who cook may know things or may have learned to make certain things or use certain spices that you learn from another person's family or watching the Food Network or whatever like that. A lot of cross-culturation. So representation also matters because like I said, when we're talking about Latin America, you usually don't see women. I like law and order. So yeah, law and order, especially for regional stuff, right? Even in the US. But imagine, imagine, um, I know you all are younger, so you probably don't watch cable as much as I did when I was younger because you didn't really have streaming services back then. Yes, it was a long time ago. But um, most of the time, the only, if we don't live around a group of people, we only get our images from the media that we consume, be it TV shows, film, things like that. And when we see representation of people in new ways, it expands our view of what these people may do or look like, or et cetera, right? So this, these are all um, women in Mexico, just to give you some examples. Now, Mexico did not officially acknowledge Afro-Mexicans on their census until 2015. Veracruz was a point of entry for enslaved people coming into Mexico from, eight, from 1585, but most Afro-Mexicans lived in Mexico City. Most of the Latin American major cities were considered black cities because 30 to 40% of the population was identifiably black, okay? And again, that makes sense. Think about if we were in 1787 again, we were in El Cajon, right? Where would be the popping place to be if we were in 1787 and we didn't have the trolley or the internet or anything else? Where would, we have to, where would we have to all go to get our mail, our news, buy things, international things that are coming in from port? That's an example. We'd have to live downtown, right? We'd have to get downtown and it would take a long time because we don't have cars and modern technology, okay? Same thing for these people. So again, if you're a free person of any race, you're gonna to wanna to live as close to the center of town as you can, because that's where everyone's coming in at, especially if you're trying to snag a rich spouse. They're all in the major cities, right? They're not out in the countryside, and when you read the diaries of the conquistadors, right, as they called themselves, um, they're actually really upset when they get land that's like three or 400 miles away from the center. Like, no one's gonna to wanna to marry me, I'm not gonna make any money, right? So they're upset about these things. These are all women from Brazil. Now, like I told you before, that the cost of an enslaved person in Mexico during this time period that we're talking about was about the cost of a house. So these are luxuries. And like I said, before it became a permanent system, you had people who would buy their freedom and it would reasonably be able to happen within a couple years because they were allowed to keep their wages, most of their wages. They only had to give their owner like 10% usually. Kind of like a tax. And these images are also all from Brazil. Just so you can see. And when you all travel the world, because I wish that for all of you when this pandemic is over, right? You'll see 
that there's a lot more representation than you get to see on our American media, but even in their media, because they also perpetuate the same types of imperialistic beauty standards on their people. Now, here's some stuff about um, Afro-Mexico in particular. So some of you have heard of Vicente Guerrero, who's the second president of Mexico, but he was called El Negro Guerrero because he was identifiably Afro-Mexican. He had phenotypic black traits, okay? And in fact, it's very interesting, one out of two people who came into the Americas to be enslaved went through Mexico, the country. So for example, Mexico and Peru had more enslaved Africans than the United States. And I asked you at the beginning of the presentation who had the least, and we decided, you know, we shared that it was the United States, this is true. So he is the one who's responsible for abolishing the caste systems on the baptism records and the birth certificates. But this is kind of a double-edged sword because in a way, and he also, you know, abolishes, um, they end up abolishing slavery right before the United States did, obviously in 1829, 1830. But it has a double-edged sword because their idea was, well, if we don't categorize people by race and we don't really talk about race, racism will go away. It's like, sorry, sir respect, but that's not how it goes, okay? Now you have, have you ever heard of Gaspar Yanga? Okay, most of you have it. He is the, this is, Yanga is in Mexico, it's a city in Mexico, but it's named after this man. He was an enslaved person who left, who ran away from slavery and fought the Spanish off for over 30 years. In fact, they negotiated for peace because they were tired of him raiding them and you know, stealing their weapons and they hid out in the hill, in the hills for 30 years, more than 30 years. So they gave him his freedom, they gave him um, a town named after him and it's still there today. Now, why don't you know about this? Because again, colonialism and byproducts of it, right? The black history of many countries, including you know, the, everyone in this whole hemisphere, the Americas, is largely washed out, ignored, not taught in schools. The people there know about the history because you know there's statues and things like that, there's commemorative monuments, but a lot of people don't. And Yanga is known as the first free city in the Americas. Now, most of you know about like Haiti, right? It's 1804, but this was in um, the 1600, 1609. So we're talking about Afro-Peru, right? Lima, just like, like, again, any other capital city in Latin America was known as a black city. 30 to 40% of the people were identifiably black descended peoples. And they had a lot more opportunities for freedom. I don't want you to think that there's like some sort of a spectrum of slavery and like, oh, and people weren't that bad and there's like really, really bad. It's all terrible. None of you would want to be enslaved. But this is again another country where people were able to have a little bit more um, freedom and autonomy because of the uh, ruralness of um, their location. So when you look at areas that don't have as much um, people, or maybe even are sort of far off from you know, the Catholic reach, they tend to be a little bit more loose on their racial restriction. Um, let me see, Pizarro brought Africans into um, the area around 1527. And most of you know about Lima when it comes to like the Incan Empire and things like that, but you're not aware of the, all of the Africans who were descended on that city as well. And like I said, the Chinese diaspora, and actually the Filipino diaspora has a lot to do with Latin America also, but you have to take my class to learn about that. Okay. And continuing on, um, you should know that they, when, when Peru was liberated from Spain, they kept pushing back letting people go freedom-wise. 
So they moved it from, you know, like Vicente Guerrero said, we're done. <laughs> I mean, slavery is no more. We're going to move on from this. Peru didn't do that. They said, well, we'll let you go when you're 18, then when you're 21, then when you're 50. Now, they eventually uh, abolished it in 1854, but the same thing happened in the United States. They were supposed to abolish, they agreed to abolish slavery in 1776 for the black descendant Americans' role in fighting the British, but they said, you know what, we can't maintain an economy if we let these people go. And Peru said the same thing. They need free labor to keep their money going. And, you know, money is really important to these people. Now, these are all images of black life painted by Pancho Fierro, if you wanted to look him up really important artist at the time. And it showcases us that, you know, as you can see, these people are just living their lives, right? They're not necessarily enslaved, and you can't tell that they're enslaved or not. Because again, they all have the same ethnic culture. So they dress the same, they're doing the same things on the market. He's not specifically painting people as servants or not, which I think is really cool. Okay, now this is, this is how you other an entire group of people. Now, most of us are used to doing this, not ourselves, but we see it happen even if we don't realize it. You can do it socially, politically, institutionally, or educationally. Now, I'm not gonna spend too much time on this, but I just wanted to show you um, that you have an example. Because, like I said, most of the times we get these images from our media, and we see it happening in real time, even if it's not being done to our group of people. And you can think about different things that happen um, from people in popular culture, things in the news, et cetera, that reinforce differences and that reinforce a caste that we're still dealing with to this day, specifically when it comes to people's lineage. Because lineage is a very important part of this. When we're talking about um, caricaturing blackness in Latin America, like I said, it's much like in the United States where they have negative imagery around black people. Now, some people would say, well, this is just a joke, or it's just a cartoon, or it's just this. But when you look at the statistics, it's not funny. Only, what, 38% of Afro-Peruvians get a high school diploma. Only 2% of them go to college. Not because they're not smart, not because you know they don't want to, it's because they're still forced to do sharecropping and cotton picking in Peru today. And in 10 years ago, their daily wage was their, our equivalent of $5. Okay, in Brazil, 1% of Afro-Brazilians. 